Welcome to Inside the Firm, a podcast dedicated to small business owners and hosted by entrepreneurs, Alex Gore and Lance Psycho. Each week, they take you on their journey of how to start, run, and grow a business by bringing you inside their architecture and real estate development firm. Get a behind-the-scenes tour of how these business leaders manage their clients and foster company culture while creating new and innovative projects. And now your host, Alex Gore and Lance Psycho. Welcome to another episode of Inside the Firm. I'm Alex Gore. I'm here with Lance Psycho, and we have a special guest that we will introduce later. So you'll have to stay tuned for that. But first, as you know, as always, what if I suck at Revit, Lance? What if I'm no good? What if you don't know that you're no good? You know what? Go check out RevitRocketship.com. Check out the content. See how you can model like it gets built. See our template. See how much faster you can get and how much more that can help you and your firm revitrocketship.com check that out i also want you to check out arcat.com this episode is brought to you by arcat.com with project conditions changing and limited time to get things done it's good to have information at your fingertips arcat.com provides architects engineers spec writers and contractors with the most comprehensive libraries of building product content and design so you can access it quickly and efficiently even better this is adam's favorite part Sorry, I, I said who the guest was. Arcat.com is free to use and requires no registration. So visit today and access the information you need now. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. Last but certainly not least, we all want you to go check out PellaLuxury.com forward slash the firm. Make sure right now, hit pause if you have to, pull over, type in PellaLuxury.com forward slash the firm. Click on that link. The link shows that we are pulling people over to that uh, website because Pella Luxury has a world-class collection of brands brought together to provide window and door solutions to the building industry and beyond. Duratherm and Riley are the true pioneers of industry. They are doing what no one else has done, building and designing beyond the status quo. These brands do not push beyond the limits. They set them. Again, explore PellaLuxury.com forward slash the firm today. Back to you, Al Gore. Well, we're here with Adam's Diner. Adam, who are you and why are you here? <laughs> What up, guys? Um, my name's Adam Steiner. I'm here just because I bug you guys in emails. <laughs> I'm like, hey, I should come on again. Um, no, I'm a home designer out of Northwest Indiana. I also run my own podcast, Builder versus Buyer. Um, the goal of the podcast, my podcast, is bringing builders and buyers together, making the process a little more transparent for everybody, um, cleaner and easier to digest. So, but yeah, design a lot of custom residential homes like you guys and always love talking and getting together. So I thought that'd be a fun one to chat today. Well, it's always great. Uh, we've been friends for a while. We see each other at, at building shows and things like that. Um, so glad to have you on. Yeah, a hundred percent. So uh, we talked about leading up to this sort of special show about um, interest rates are affecting everybody, um, but most specifically people in our industry who are contractors, developers, and designers like like uh, yours truly, Adam, and then inside the firm guys over here. And so I uh, highly recommend everybody, if they haven't heard me give this pitch already, they are not a sponsor, but if you uh, sign up to the newsletter for the NAHB, they put out some of the best articles um, that I've seen in a long time for that. So I'm actually going to just switch here and share our screen and show you guys what we're looking at. Um, uh, they came out with a headline recently. 
uh, this week that says housing affordability, housing affordability falls to more than 10 year low as rising interest rates take a toll. Um, so they fell to their lowest level since the uh, housing affordability, sorry, fell to its lowest level since the National Association of Home Builders began tracking it on a consistent basis in 2012. As rising mortgage rates, ongoing building material supply chain disruptions, high inflation, and elevated home prices push the housing market into a recession. And with mortgage rates moving even higher in the fall, affordability conditions are expected to further deteriorate through the end of the year. Uh, according to the NAHB Wells Fargo Housing Opportunity Index, just 42.2% of new and existing homes sold between the beginning of July and end of September were affordable to a family's earning the U.S. medium income of 90K. This marks the second consecutive quarterly record for low for housing affordability since the Great Recession, trailing the previous mark of 42.8 set in the second quarter. Um, so Adam, before we kind of started, uh, the show today, one of the things you, you mentioned is you were talking with other builders and, and folks about what they're seeing on the ground. Like, what are you guys seeing up there? Yeah. So it's interesting. So as you guys know, most of my clients are home builders themselves, not the, not as much of the end user. So I talked to a lot of builders very often and actually pulled a bunch of them this week. And it was really interesting talking to them. Like you reading those headlines, sounds so scary but the vibe i got from more builders was more relief than fear shockingly mm -hmm. because things have been so crazy for these two years that worse than not selling houses is selling a ton of houses and not making money and you have the added headache of having a client on the end um so that's they've been through the worst case scenario um, and I think the relief comes in and like, I heard this from multiple builders is we're, we feel like we're going to get some control back. Mm. You know, we, so we were selling like crazy. Everything's selling like hotcakes. It's awesome. Yeah. Everybody's happy. But then as the build goes, it's like, we can't get a hold of our subs. Subs are raising pricing and delivering worse service. Like it's just, it's just out of control is a phrase I heard a lot. And so they're like, at least we can get we can get some control back and really start to dictate on our jobs, you know, a firm price and a firm schedule. And that's just been gone the last two years. So it it's really interesting at this point in the market to be like, we might hit another all-time low in housing and builders are like, yeah, we're okay with that. <laughs> you know, it's weird. That's that's such a unique perspective. Um, and, and I'm so glad you talked to them. Uh, I was with a developer yesterday and uh, basically what he said was uh, walk-ins have fallen off a cliff here in Colorado. Yeah. Just, he said it, he goes, maybe you'll get one person in the sales office per day. Um, and he works with a lot of different developments and, and has a lot of friends in the industry. And we kept talking about it for 10 or 15 minutes. And the one thing I didn't ask is like, Hey, this project we're working on, is it going to stop? And it, it clearly didn't because we went through, we, we redlined things and like that, uh, red lines and, and basically told them like, okay, we're going to go to, you know, CDs now. Um, and they're like, yeah, no problem. But uh, one thing that he said was interesting was that some people think it's a good idea to buy down points right now because the mortgage rate is, is too high. And he goes to go down 1%. And I didn't check his numbers or anything, but he's like, it's 20 grand. 
And that doesn't make any sense because mm. you're paying that 20 grand to pay down that point over the 30 year span. If you're going to do a 30 year span, yep. because the average people stay in their houses is like 6.8 to seven years, like six yeah. point, let's just call it 6.9. So you're paying that for, you know, that many years with, and within four years, if it doesn't already go down that and, and refinance, you know, it, it would be a shock to everyone. Um, so basically he, he's been in this industry since the eighties and he goes, I've even back in the eighties when it was so high, never seen a drop off like this because they were used to higher, uh, interest rates. They, they started out at a higher point. They obviously went higher. And then within a couple of years, they came back down. He's talking about Volcker and what he did and all that. Um, but we're still moving forward with that project uh, and it's still going forward. But it, it was just interesting. He said, it's like one person a day comes in now. To the, Verse, know, versus? Yeah. He, he didn't uh, say versus, but I can only imagine, like I've been in uh, neighborhoods on a Saturday randomly and I'll just go into their, their showroom and there'll be three people within the time that I'm there. Yeah. You know, and what's that? I'm there for a half hour, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, my, my wife, uh, so let's see, she, she deals with a sector that's usually between 500 K and about a million dollars right now. And, uh, so, she, and people who are, you know, two combined income or just single income of 200 K or more in Boulder County. So they're upper middle class folks. And, uh, she's, she's seen her, her, opinion was also a sort of relief as well. And, and that it just wasn't, um, it, it's more advantageous for her buyers actually. And she doesn't want to be a listing agent right now. And that sort of flipped over yeah. the summer. Um, she even mentioned uh, yesterday, apparently there's a house in North Denver right now that is, uh, was listed at 250,000. And I was, and I, you know, my eyes popped out and she goes, and she was telling me more about it. And it, it we don't know if it was a meth house or what, but like it's stripped down to the studs and she, uh, and so then, you know, the people, this, there was a gal she's working with and she said that gal, that gal is very interested in the, pro like buying this and, and putting in another hundred to 150 and then holding it, um, and doing whatever she was going to do with it. The, the price, it, it, it was underlisted at 250. It's probably going to go up to 350. That's where it should have been listed, but they wanted to institute a buying war. And sure enough, within uh, six hours of it listing, they had 30 offers already. Ooh, and it was already, okay. it was already pushed almost up to 350. And then I wow. asked her, well, what if you did put in the 150? Like, what could you get out of it? And she said, oh, it would comp for about 590. Mm -hmm. So it's, there's a lot of money still on the sidelines. People never really want to stop making money because we have to make money. Um, when you, when your builders, when people you talk to, when they, when they talked about relief, when I, when I think about relief as a builder, I think, for instance, just example yesterday, the, for example, yesterday, our plumbers finally said, Hey, we're hungry. <laughs> and then the, now yeah. all of a sudden, like they want to show up and they're going to do this, do like a task I've been asking them to do for months. Um, was that sort of this, did you hear any of that specific sentiment? Oh, hundred like, percent. One of my builders was like, a framer called me. I haven't talked to a framer in like 18 months. They called looking for work. Like, this is awesome. Um, and so that was the, that was the overarching sense. One of, one of my builders is, um, he's a very competitive guy. And so, um, through all this, you know, through COVID, the pandemic and everything, like 
prices kept going up and up and up and service kept getting worse and worse and worse. And now that there's like, you know, a little bit of blood in the water, he's like, I'm going, everybody is getting shopped. We, as a company are finding new contracts for every single trade we got. And you are going to get rebid. We, that loyalty that we thought was built up is, is gone because you didn't treat us with that loyalty when, when things got hard on our end. Yep. So we're getting out there and we're bidding everything. And that's, that's what builders are thinking now is like, oh, we can actually get our trades lined up for 2023 and get solid pricing and, you know, agree to reasonable stuff that was, again, was gone the last two years. Yeah, I think that's a key point that I don't think people really think about is that loyalty on, on, on both sides. I was just talking to a lady that represents a developer and she was saying uh, there's about four or five builders in this development. One already has a great architect. One kind of does it himself. And then she goes, one or two, they have architects, but they're kind of upset because they don't, they're slow, mm. you know, and they keep delaying them. Like, well, is this a perfect time then for you to look at other architects, you, you know, and, and they might want to be like, oh, no, 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 now I have the time. Now I can, you know, pay attention to you. Yeah, but what happens when this happens again? Like, are you just going to kind of ghost me and, and, and do all that? Right. Um, so. Yeah. Right. How about, so design wise, I mean, are you seeing any slowdown because of stuff like this? How has it changed for you? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely seeing a somewhat of a slowdown. Um, it was as crazy as it's ever been in my whole entire life. I'm 36. So it was as crazy as it's ever been in my whole entire life this last year and a half. So I knew it wasn't going to be like that for forever. So mm -hmm. I am seeing somewhat of a slowdown, but I'm still getting calls for custom clients. Um, so one of the questions I asked my builders is, uh, the first thing was, did interest rates affect your sales? Yeah. And the higher end and more custom was less, obviously was less affected by rising interest rates. And that's, that's most of my design clients as well. I assume you guys too. Um, and, and so those higher, and one builder was like, yeah, we almost do exclusively cash buyers. So they didn't care at all. You know, mm -hmm. um, so it, it was, it's been interesting, but yeah, I think I'm still getting calls for custom clients here and there. Um, again, it's not as frequent, but, um, I'm also saying yes to more like renovations and remodels and stuff that I did. I don't love to do. Um, but just a little more open to that. What about you guys? Well, it's interesting. I think you're absolutely correct. All the cash buyers are going to get a better product for a better price mm -hmm. now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, well, Lance has been fielding many of the inquiries. So I guess I'll pass it over to you. We're about a couple, like probably a month, maybe six weeks ago. Um, we switched. Uh, we've been running, we've been doing Google ads now. Really, really, we've been focused. We've had a, we switched from social media. And I know we're going to get into that. I, one of these, one of the, on our next top, one of our points to talk about, Adam, we actually took money from where we were spending on Facebook and we said, let's do Google AdWords for a couple months. Uh, just try it out. And the, it, as soon as we turned on Google AdWords with our Google business listing, then the, it was just like this brand, it was like a whole new sales funnel and it, it kind of expanded. Al um, filled up pretty quickly. Uh, based on that. And then I'm on the cusp of, about, of about doing the same right now. I am, I was one of the last people at the firm to sort of have my plate full 
from a design standpoint. And now it looks like I'm kind of there. I mean, right before we started this podcast, I was scrambling. I just met with a client. I was scrambling to get their drawings revised quickly out before the weekend. And then looking ahead next week, I have a, a new custom house that I'm starting um, in the same development that Al's working on. Again, came from Google AdWords. And then uh, also an- another custom house that was from a referral or whatever. But like the, the inquiries have been uh, very solid for us in the custom category. It hasn't, as far as, I know we're doing a bunch of spec houses right now for a developer. Yeah. Um, so that's still on the docket and everything. I, I don't know what the price point is for those. And if it, if it matters, like I've got to assume it's above, it's sort of, is this sort of the same clientele that uh, my wife, like my wife is not seeing this giant slowdown? 500K, yeah. a million? Yeah, they have different options. So you could probably, well, yeah, you can probably get something in 500k to the to the 800s. Um, another thing that he said was uh, houses that a year ago, he knows for a fact in Colorado that we're going in the 600 range. They're literally 100k off. They're literally in the 500 range. So let's say they were 630, now they're 530, which is which is wow. kind of crazy. People are still yeah, is. yeah. Whereas people are still, I just we didn't get this project. I just found out this morning it would have been a 20,000 square foot industrial building. Um, our prices were just a little bit too much for this, for this fella, but, uh, you know, we got that inquiry lately. Um, so, uh, you know, not just residential, right. Interest rates affect obviously commercial too. People are taking down properties or leasing or whatever. I'm not seeing a slowdown there. It's about where we wanted to, where we usually want to be, which is probably one commercial inquiry a week. We signed a, uh, a daycare last week. I'm still working on this, uh, hopefully this uh, dental office um, north of us in a little bit. So far, so good. I, you know, Alex and I have been talking on the last two episodes of our, of our show. Our show is that if the, if the Fed can actually thread the needle perfectly, like it's entirely possible if they just, and, and the economy keeps holding while they keep raising rates to try to get tape, tap, tap, to tamper down inflation. And then if they can taper down after that and not have to increase with the the interest rates and sort of get us back to a normal where they want to be, you know, two to 3% inflation, uh, then we're probably in good shape. And maybe we did somehow have this weird soft landing that ever, that the media keeps talking about. So we're cautiously optimistic. I don't think it's doom and gloom. I mean, we would really need to see a liquidity crisis. That's always the key with these things, just like it happened in 2008 the banks froze, like they, the lending stopped overnight. And then if you don't have that lending, all you're left with is the cash buyers. And like you were saying, Adam, which is a very small segment of society, uh, relatively speaking. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. And what, <clears throat> there might be a lag on the cash buyers, meaning a lot of our cash buyers are, Hey, I, I sold my house in North Carolina and now I'm moving to Colorado. Mm-hmm. And basically, you know, they're retired, so they've paid off their whole house, so they have their whole house amount, and now they're ready to, to do cash. Well, is are these people that are retired in North Carolina now going to sell their house? You know, like maybe they can't, yeah. maybe they can't. So maybe the cash buyers, some of those cash buyers even dry up um, because they just don't want to sell their house in, in this economy with this. Uh, uh, an, another great point is, um, this was Patrick Bet David. He said a $2 million house is not a $2 million house anymore. It was a $2 million house because the interest rates were 3%. 
it's a 1.5 to 1.2 million dollar house now that the interest rates are seven to going to 10 percent mm. like that's that's huge that's yeah. huge what kind of stuff are you doing adam to make are you are you diversifying or anything i mean are you cautiously optimistic what's your take on it yeah i'm cautiously optimistic as well um and you know another thing i asked all the builders was are you pivoting um mm. in 2023 at all and one thing I'm seeing personally is I'm working on a lot of um, multifamily or medium to high density projects, townhomes, duplexes, um, stuff like that, because anybody who's any builder who's got a decently aggressive investor alongside them is wanting to get into the rental game. Like if, if things go bad, rentals always work. Like there's still going to be people, they still need somewhere to live. Um, so working on yeah eight unit condo buildings row townhomes duplexes um that's been my personal biggest pivot um that i'm seeing one builder mentioned um you know the remodels and additions and stuff which i think will always be there if if the economy slows and we saw that in you know 09 2010 like that market was still relatively high um but yeah i i think the the building to create rental market will be something that we see a little bit more of in this next couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. We're seeing a lot of the same. I mean, we're doing a lot of multifamily right now and we just had another inquiry for one, like a triplex. So it, it makes sense to us. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, all you can do is like, how much can you really do to help yourself with the macro besides the fundamental stuff, making sure you have enough cash reserves to pay employees, making sure you're as diverse as possible with your the typologies you're taking in, uh, and then paying down your debt. I, I like, I'm not sure. Well, Rever Rocketship, you got to go to Rever Rocketship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, if yeah. the Fed breaks the economy, the Fed yeah. breaks the economy. There's, you know, yeah, right. We're not in control. But I, I, I think we've even talked about this before. Like, as a small business owner, like, I'm feeding my family off of drawings I make. So if things get bad, I'm going to work really freaking hard to make sure I got, I got stuff to do, you know? And so getting really fast and really streamlined with your stuff, like making sure everything is dialed so that you can deliver, like if you need to slash your price, I know architects talk about this all the time of like the race to the bottom and it's this bad thing, but like if things get ugly and I need to slash my prices in half, I want to be at a point where I can do it and still make money and still you know, get, get contracts. And I don't think there's any architect out there bragging about that, but like, it's something you need to be ready to do that. Yeah. We all hope doesn't happen, but. Right. I kind of agree more. If it literally becomes, I need to pay my mortgage and food, then it is, it is primal. And it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. We can all have, we can all have these lofty ivory tower goals and thoughts, but when the rubber hits the road, it's like, it is what it is. Yeah. At the end of the day. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Want to, Adam, did you, you have a segment next? Do or did you have a segment did, next? Did you yeah. want to wrap up anything else from, from the builders or the economy? Yeah. Um, one last, so a couple of builders had some cool ideas for pivoting. We talked about a couple of them. Just want to mention one other one. One, they were high-end custom builder dealing with mostly cash clients and they went back and called 
all of their good clients and said, do you want to be a cash investor on a project? Either we co-build a spec home or it's a rental home or it's an Airbnb, but let's, let's figure out something. And you're a cash buyer. You have, you have the capital to be able to do something like this. So there's a lot of creative strategies that people are doing um, in and around the building industry that I wouldn't, I wouldn't be reluctant to do pick up the phone and and see what you can scrounge up. Yeah, that's such a good that's such a good idea and it leads me to like you know, architects so architects designers we we all work in this industry where there's people that are funding the projects through capital in order to either either it's all cash and then they're just getting return 10, 12 whatever percent on their money or they're also funding the they're funding the project getting that same return plus and then plus they're going after a bank loan to, to, to then fund the whole thing entirely. If, if you're thinking about ways to pivot people who are listening, um, you know, there, the entry level for development is fix and flip, just like the one I talked about, about the $250,000 house. Understand that your, your, your competition is insanely stiff. My wife even says like it's worldwide competition now, like people are doing this from all over the world and looking in segments, you know, places like, that are safer, like Denver, like Boulder, where people are still moving to, and therefore, even through a recession, there's going to be demand just because people are moving here, like Florida, places like that, right? Destination places. California's probably yeah. not on the docket here, but like, what a good, what an interesting way to sort of buoy yourself if the things go sour. Like, if you if you were doing the three fundamental things I already talked about with with the debt, the streamlining, um, and the diversity. Why not add to that diversity if if you're thinking about it of t- maybe you take down a house and I don't mean demolish it. I just mean secure it. If it's yeah. if the numbers all work out, you have a Rolodex of developers. I'm sure if you just were on the horn all day long, you could get enough meetings lined up with people with capital like you just talked about, Adam, and then make it happen. Put yourself, put a design fee in for yourself, put a contractor fee in for yourself, put a developer fee in for yourself. Make sure you go to architectsguide2.com if you're an architect trying to become a builder, and then you, you're that cash flow could keep going, and maybe that those just a couple of those projects could save your firm, and you don't have to lay people off, and you keep things going. Like the creativity always comes out when people get pushed into a corner. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, well, cool. You're dealing with HOAs. I know we're dealing with HOAs. And uh, yeah. tell, us about, tell us about yours. And I know you were asking how we sort of handle things. Yeah. So this is your um, question here, Al, of um, my questions was, so HOA and developer approval. Um, we, I just recently did a project in a mountain town and the HOA approval process, this is probably not shocking to you guys, but to me was a little surprising because it's much less in Indiana, but um, the HOA process was multiple meetings, full board of architects, um, Mm. revisions, requirements that didn't make sense architecturally um, that like some of them were just like, we couldn't have the masonry ledge the same level on a single elevation. Like, but I, I want to carry an even line across, <laughs> you know, just random stuff that just kind of bureaucratically got in there. Um, and, and so 
fortunately for us, this was, I personally knew the builder and this was a spec home. So as those changes were requested and we, we were able to navigate the process relatively smoothly, but I know it would be really hard with a client on the end who loves the project, loves what you've drawn. And then you get a, a room of four architects in that are reviewing in a subdivision and they want all these changes. Like, how do you navigate that? How do you coach your clients? What do you guys recommend in that process? You're doing so, HOA right now. Yep. And then I've done an HOA in the past and it did have three architects. And honestly, the three architects, they, they only had good ideas. Um, and then there was one that was like semi iffy. And I think I just said like, oh, that doesn't make sense because we did X, Y, and Z. And they were like, oh yeah, that, that's perfect. Um, the other thing is there is an HOA that we have two clients in, uh, in the same HOA, and they have these rules about uh, a high level pitch roof. Um, and not that we want to do really, really modern, but like lower slope roofs can kind of still work. Um, and, and they're fighting against it. And I think it goes to what you said. There's actually like two parts to what you said. And it's the same thing with the city. Once you decide to put everything in writing, now it's just bureaucratic. Like, oh, you have to break up your masonry edge. Yeah, but what if it doesn't work? Well, too bad. And it's even gone like yeah. I've gone all the way to the city where the lawyer has said like, nope, there's no other choice in this. And, and it was programmatic, not design wise, but it's like, yeah, but this makes complete sense. Mm -hmm. And they said, no, the law is this. Mm -hmm. So like, even though it makes every sense in the world, we're just going to say no. And I was just severely disappointed that, you know, in them at, as people, you know, um, really, because it's like, you could, you could all vote just to not comply, but, <laughs> and it goes back to the HOA. Like you could all see the logic in what Adam's saying and just say, yeah, overruled. But the problem is, and I've known this and I've actually fired a developer um, who is literally trying to take everything that they can do and do it the wrong way. And I go, and then hey, ask for forgiveness later. Or, or is just, that, is that or, approach, or just say it? like, Oh, this, this technically isn't in the rules. It's clearly the wrong thing to do. Like clearly the wrong thing to do, but the rules say that I can do it. So I'm going to do it. And I'm like, you're the reason why they keep adding rules. I didn't say that to them. You know what yeah. I mean? Like you're the reason why yeah. they have to be like this and they have to say yeah. like, oh, it's in the rules or it's not in the rules. Um, so there's there's like, and, and you can't control that. You can't control people taking advantage of that. And you can't, it, it's like, you don't want to fault them too much because, okay, it's their land. They want to do what they want on their land, um, but they're ruining it for everyone else. So it is definitely messy um and <clears throat> i don't know what the solution is versus like because sometimes hoas will have hey here's just some example stuff that we like and then we'll have a committee right say stuff well then it's nebulous but if you're doing something quality it should be good versus hey here's just a whole list of stuff and no matter what you got to comply with it yeah it seems like uh so yeah. to answer your question though how we how we like, what do we do for clients? Uh, spec builders, I, I can't, I don't know if we could even comment about that just because I don't, I can't think of where we have had to work or we're working with somebody who's doing a spec build in a custom community with a HOA. But with our custom clients, uh, the first thing we do is we just, we ask for the HOA docs and then we just tell them the truth. 
Um, and so these two specific clients, I'm doing a house in this neighborhood that Al's doing a house in. It's kind of like exactly at the same time. Al's a little bit ahead because he actually ended up sending an email out to the HOA and I'm happy to share it um, without naming names and everything and kind of our approach uh, to sort of get what the clients want. So really it all boils down to like, okay, what does the client want? And, and what did, do they even understand what they, per, like the rules within the, which they purchase their land? And a lot of times they don't, um, it, yeah. there's just so much to digest. Right. And that's our job to be the trusted advisor, um, for mm -hmm. them. So, uh, both of the clients in this specific development that we're starting to design these homes in their custom, uh, clients, they came to us because they liked the East watch house. It's super, it's a very, very modern house. If everybody, if, if people want to look at what it is, just go to f9productions.com forward slash Eastwatch. You'll see it's an award-winning house. It's been on the cover of Builder Magazine. Um, oh, that's beautiful. It's an awesome house. Thank you. And they, uh, so the people are coming to us for specifically that, like we've niched in and they're like, we want F9. This is the style. It doesn't have to be exactly like this, but like the essence and the zeitgeist of what we, you guys have done is why we are here to hire you. And so then we're like, great, we love those houses. Like if we could just do East watches all day long, we probably would. Um, and then we said, then we, hey, well, let, let us give us your HOA docs if you could. Once, you know, either before we sign or we after sign, after we sign, it doesn't matter. We know we're going to have to go through an HOA process. So we're accounting for it in our proposal anyway. And, uh, Lo and behold, like Alex was saying, this one wants the pitches have to be between 10 and 12, 10, 10, 12 and 212 is very, very steep. It's like imagine a 45 degree angle on your roof, like super steep. And then we try to understand, like, what is the purpose behind this? Like, what is the HOA trying to solve with these kind of rules? Because they're always trying to mitigate problems preemptively with it. And uh, what, what we found out and what we think is happening is that, um, they don't want modern white boxes. They're trying to make it so you don't end up with these uber, uber modern buildings that look nothing like Colorado, stick out from the landscape and all of that. And I think part of, and so that's their 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 default mitigation against that is, well, let's just do regularly like, well, when I think of a house, I think of a pitch. And I think if I think a mountain, I think of steep pitch. And so let's just make sure they have steep pitch roofs. And so then we, Alex actually wrote an email back to them and to the HOA. And we're trying to have now have a dialogue with the HOA ahead of, you know, sending drawings off to them. We aren't even to that point. Um, but basically showing them, hey, here's, here's why our clients came to us. Here's why they purchased property in the development you guys are in control of. This is, a, this is, this is exactly the project they came to us for. We understand that further looking at your HOA documents, you guys want uh, rustic, you know, um, Western style materials. Like, what does that mean? So like for us, what it means is um, like when we drive to Colorado up into the mining towns, there's a lot of rusted metal. It just makes sense, right? These old mining uh, yeah. places. And it's like, oh yeah, well guys, just to reassure you, Architects like us love that stuff. We don't think of it as we can still do modern architecture, contemporary stuff with that stuff. And look, here's an example of how, like, see how this house blends in? Like, it doesn't do the stick out that you guys are suggesting. And actually, 
If we have a low profile roof, it's going to do even more than that. If we have to do a high profile roof, like you're asking for twice the obstruction on the landscape versus a low profile thing. So, and then Alex made a kind of a pitch about like, you know, it, uh, for, I'll read verbatim. Our, our main question is, is there any leniency on the roof pitch? They would be open to options where they can have a lower roof pitch as long as, for example, the building height doesn't break the tree line. The house cannot be seen by the local road. And that's, you know, this, you know, he cited this highway and everything. And then went on to say, like, our clients are still interested in rustic slash Western features, but feel that this can be accomplished in a more contemporary fashion, right? And then he fully reassured them, we are not proposing modern, modern white boxes. We are only asking to have the guideline reflect that there could be different approaches to meet the spirit guidelines, spirit of the guidelines, other than the strict high pitch roof line, which makes the roof line that conflicts with the scenic highway. So we're sort of trying to use what they're setting up as ammunition for like, guys, it's actually kind of a bad idea. Like you're sort of, you're trying to, you're asking for your cake to eat and, and have it and eat it too. You're, yeah. you're, you're like, these are conflicting things. And so we're setting it up with that. We, we've had in the past where we've had success and with this approach is um, there's Red Hill Road, another project on our website. It was in another HOA and it was the same sort of guidelines. We ended up being able to do a nice, perfect, modern shaped house. But the big thing we wanted to make sure we could do was, can we do metal siding? And they said no metal siding in the HOA docks. And uh, I get why they would say that. Because what usually what people try to do in the cheapest way to build, or at least it was before the pandemic was prefabricated steel metal building. It looks like a shop. And now you're seeing yeah, like this yeah, condominium yeah. movement. I agree yeah. with the HOA. Like you don't want a bunch of that. I agree. But like, mm. guys, I think it's just because you aren't swimming in architecture every day. Like we are and construction and you don't understand, you don't know what you don't know. And what we know is, metal that is quality and done well does not look like these shops. And so we showed them elevations of it. We had full blown renderings and they go, yeah, this isn't a problem. Go for it. Yeah. 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 It, it's, it's a really hard spot because usually, especially later in the development cycle, the people who are in charge of the HOA are ones that live there and they're financially motivated to have you build as expensive of a home as possible through the appraisal process. Like this is how our system works. Yep. They buy more expensive homes. Their home is worth more. Yep. Um, so it's, I find I'm always pushing like your, your point of the, the metal siding, like the metal siding we're using is expensive. Like it's, it's sometimes the HOA just wants to hear that. Like it's more expensive than what you're requesting. And they're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. We're fine. Um, yeah. It's, it's tough. I, I often tell clients if there is, if the, if the documents look open-ended at all, I will say like, let's go in with the design open-handed of like, some of this stuff may change and we might not have control over it. Um, so like, don't fall in love with too, too many features. Like let's, we'll, we'll try yeah. and push as much as we can. But um, question for you guys, at what point do you show the development or HOA, the drawings that you're working on with your client? Right after schematic design, right when we get the layout and the form. And normally we go in with kind of a white form um, with maybe patterns of, hey, this is vertical, this is horizontal, this is this is brick. And the problem that, that I find 
is for some reason, people get stuck in the head too that some HOAs, hey, we want this style. So like the one that Lance talked about, we're still going to do a Western style in there. And it makes sense. And the clients are all, all okay with that. But you'll have neighborhoods um, and maybe they are developed in the early 2000s and they have your typical whatever. And they have pictures of just houses that just look like every typical house. There, In my mind, honestly, there is no reason why you can't do a high quality modern house. I think they get scared of a couple of things. They see there's... Um, uh, uh, Facebook page called uh, what is it? Fugly, Denver Fugly. Yeah, and it's these modern <laughs> things with just regular siding, you know, like hardy board or or lap siding, and then just shitty patterns of windows and, and all that. And that's what they're they're fighting against. So they're like, yeah, we don't want that that crappy modern. So we're just gonna settle at just a traditional suburban house. And yeah. That, that's actually what I hate the most is like, don't link me into a style, link me into a quality standard. What is mm. the quality yeah, standard yeah. that I can hit? Because my clients want to hit that quality standard. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's but, uh, besides some, like some, <laughs> I think, I think the example that Al gave about when he, when that, that presentation that occurs in that way is if it's a, if it's a form issue, you know, if you're trying to push, if you're trying to get them to agree to maybe being the bending the form rules, you know, whether it's breaks in the, in the, in the planes of the, of the walls, or if it's roof lines, what I have, what we have done, like with Red Hill Road is we already knew we met the form requirement. It was just a material issue for us. And so we actually went one step. We didn't, we went one, that's why we went one step further with full-blown renderings uh, using Enscape to convince them because I wanted to come in with like guns a blazing. I wanted to have all of our guns loaded and ready to rock and like show a very polished, convincing, like, look how beautiful this is. You guys don't yeah. want to deny this beautiful, beautiful piece of architecture. We are not represent. We are not trying to push a metal shop here. We're pushing a, a very high quality metal uh, cladded building in, in lieu of what you guys are saying. And, and what I'll normally yeah. do too, if I bring that the white box of the form is I'll find pictures of, let's say we're using three or four materials of um of those materials on houses that look good and literally like hey this metal goes here this brick goes here this goes there rather than trying to render it and, and spend all that time just for them to see like oh there's four end products we liked all four of those houses we can see the quality of material um and it's just and i'm not saying it, it works out it, everyone goes through this we, process yeah we're, i mean the office building we're sitting in you know is our development and we run the hoa and there's, there's design standards. And so, and then I live in a neighborhood where it's a, where we have an HOA and I was able to get my one little shed roof on my house that I wanted, which is a two twelve pitch. Your yeah. neighbors has yeah. a funky house. Our neighbor. Yeah. But yeah, he got a funky house, but the pitches, his pitches actually are what they're supposed to be. Oh. Um, Like I was able, and then, but what I'm getting at is again, is like, but my, my landscape is probably the most stark thing compared to all the neighbors. Ours is uh, uh, just a sea of rock and like climate um, positive uh, plants, you know, like cactuses, yucca plants. We don't water our even aspens. Yeah. They're all drought resistant. We had several neighbors come up to us afterwards. They, they, you could tell, like, the, I was like, do you, like, I didn't say this to them, but I'm like, do you want to tell on me? Like, what are you doing? I can, I get a weird vibe from you right now. I didn't, you know, just thinking this in my head. 
when but like they were just they were like shocked that we got our landscape approved and i think it again boils down to they don't know what they don't know so they don't know that it's possible to do this amazing beautiful xeriscape landscape still fit within the hoa regs because we have we have 100% of the plants you're supposed to like number of plants you're supposed to do and they just assume that like okay well we want it we're just you know well yeah of course we're gonna have grass in our front yard of course of course we're gonna have grass in our front yard like rocks that's that's completely out of the question and uh and then you know then subsequently we've had neighbors go like man we wish we would have done what you guys did like yeah we're saving hundreds hundreds of dollars per month in the summer especially in colorado where water is very scarce and labor too yeah yeah so that that would be my overall summation um, for this little part of the show today is for people that are listening is like, just remember, they don't know what they don't know. And it's your job to gently and, and professionally educate people in a positive way about what they don't know and show them alternatives. And then your, and then your comment, Adam, about the, the quality and the value, like we're increasing your guys's comps. Trust me, this is a better yeah, product yeah. in the end. Yeah, that's a hard thing to say because basically, but you're correct. Is like this is better than your house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um. Well, hey, we're obviously on a podcast, and um, I know one of your the things is like we've gotten clients recently that have actually listened to our show, and it convinced them to hire us. So it is a marketing tool for us in that way gives us a presence and I think it just helps people feel us out in a different way than other architects. Um, so your question that you sort of have teed up in here for our, in the notes is should every firm have a podcast? I think every firm that wants to do one should have one. I don't know if every firm just have one as a default. It's all, it's a lot to put yourself out there, as you know, Adam, I mean, the first yeah. couple ones are like a little nerve wracking, but like, I do feel like everybody could have a podcast. They, they, there's an audience for everything. And so niching into what you talk about, even if it's just your process, even if you just started, even if you just had a YouTube channel and you did like one episode a month or something, or you just had a series of little episodes about like, what's it like to work with F9? What's it like to work with Adam? Um, what's it like, you know, what's it like to work with, you know, architect.com or whatever. And you know what? I would go a little bit further on that because getting a, having a podcast, there's time in setting it up. There's time in knowing what you want to talk about. You have to execute, you got to cut it and all that. So rather than every firm having a podcast, I, I think every firm should have, let's just say anywhere from one to five videos yeah. um, about yeah. topics, about different things. Um, and that can be linked to YouTube. You can put that on a page. I really think they should have something like that. What, what's, your, what's been your experience, Adam, from a sales stamp, just a client? Yeah. Um, so I would say the podcast is surprisingly poor at lead gen. Like, I don't feel like as many people found me because of my podcast as I thought going in, but lead capture, it's amazing. I I keep telling people this and I, I don't feel like as many people are listening as should be. My clients walk in the door liking me and trusting me. Right. Like, and I'm sure most of yours, like if anybody's remotely interested and in, has ever listened to a podcast, if they find you have a podcast and they're thinking about hiring you, they will listen. And 
you either are going to turn them off so much that they don't want to work with you, which is probably a blessing in disguise, right? Mm-hmm. Or they like your personality, believe what you say and go with you. And so to start the project at such a positive note is so huge. Like there's no closing in sales or anything like the clients I've had that are like, oh yeah, we listened to a couple episodes of your podcast. It's like, awesome. I'll send you a proposal. Like, let's go, <laughs> you know? And I, I bet you guys have experienced similar things. It's like, it's just, there's in the sales process, being able to get your personality out there is so huge. Um, so my, my thought is like, cause what you guys are saying of it's a lot to have an episodic podcast and even I've ran out of steam here and trying to do one every couple of weeks, you know, I'm at 70 some, you guys are at hundreds and hundreds of some, um, it's a ton of work to do this. And I don't think everybody, you have to really want to do it and be excited about it. If you're going to get into that level, the deep end of this, but Al, you mentioned it, like every, every firm should have a six episode miniseries. just what it's like to work with us, or here's the process in working with us, or even if you're going to hire an architect, this is what you should do. Not even take us out of the equation, just helping people figure out how to hire an architect. Like every firm should have some tool to get their personality out and also share something because every potential client is going to listen to that stuff. And I think you just should. Yeah. I, I like the point you brought up about screening. I've wondered that too. And like, it seems like it's a blessing to disguise if they don't like uh, our stance on, you know, something, you know, even vaguely political that we bring up on the podcast or something like that. Chances are we aren't going to mix. Like I'm okay with actually drilling down the pool of people who want to work with us because then I know we're going to get the very best. I, I try to tell this to my wife all the time, like have the courage to be disliked because then you're going to, those people who dislike you are not going to hire you in the first place. And you're not going to end up in this horrible business marriage for months on end. Like it's okay yeah. to be niche you like, I want to attract people that generally agree with me on a multitude of things. And it just makes sense. Right. I mean, it's such a high emotional project uh, process, just even designing a home. And then you get into the building of it. And then like, that's why I try to tell her, like, she, she knows it's an emotional process with selling these homes. And I'm like, just please believe me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's actually so a, a service I'm toying with is I'm doing this with one of my builders is I'm the one developing the questions for them and then I'm interviewing them on this six episode miniseries. So there's there's some comfort level there and they don't have to be the ones flying solo, figuring all this stuff out. Like I know their process well enough to know like these are the your strengths and this is what will hit on the in in the run, you know, on the episodes and We'll go through and have you explain in your own words the process, but I'm there to just kind of help and, and move along and yeah. um, get them not so nervous in front of camera. So Right. And, th- and then um, that's the other thing. So like partnerships, building building partnerships with either your builders, your consultants, having them on your show, um, it is advertising for them because if you're like with, yeah. uh, if you're like us, Adam, then people who are listening to our shows are likely other architects and, and, and designers and so then if they hear, you know, whatever, whatever engineer, whatever consultant, whatever builder, then, then there's the possibility of them maybe generating a lead off of it, maybe, maybe capturing that lead. But then there's just the reciprocity of, Hey, like we're, we're partners here. Like we believe in you so much. We're, we're putting you on the show. 
And um, there's just sort of this, you know, tighter knit network that sort of happens from it. That was one of the big lessons I learned from a podcast. I was actually an interview to be on a podcast. For some reason, he didn't follow through with it, but he was like, every person I have on they're like, I'll just tell you that he's like, I'll just say the truth. Like, what, what are you doing for me? Because and what do you, what am I doing for you? And we just, you know, so that's how he's looking at um, the guests. Yeah. Yeah. Let's move on to social media. Cause we're probably running up on the year and a half hour here. I know you're a big TikToker. Uh, <laughs> we are not. And I would love your to hear. Are you still, t- I mean, I assume you're still TikToking. Does it get yep. you leads? Yeah. Actually, wow. it does. Okay, um, elaborate, please. And what's crazy is I have never asked for a custom home design lead. I've never once put a close. I put a close for some of my digital products in videos, but never once put a close for my services. And I still get a ton of them. Um, and there are certain videos that really hit with it and certain videos that don't. Um it, it's it's tricky to figure out. So I posted one on, I don't know, you guys have probably seen a lot of these where a client has hand-drawn a plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I posted a video of like, I, I love this process, fun to work with the clients. Here's a couple of things to think about if you're going to hand-draw a plan. And then this is what it looked like when we all put it together and I showed a rendering of it. And people watch that video like crazy. I got a ton of leads off of it because it just, I didn't realize that there are tons of people out there that want to draw their own homes. and But they realize they can't bring it over the finish line. So yeah, I got, yeah, requests and um, all sorts of stuff. And then with with social media, because it's not a local builder, I know words not getting around, like I can um, really present more of my like take it or leave it pricing, you know? Like I don't need to be, um, my local builders that I work with consistently, I have, you know, much better rates than, um, what I do for the social stuff, because it's like, yeah, if if I get this project, awesome. And if not, I'm okay. Um, But but also to be fair to you too, like, you know, the process with your builders, you know, you know, the process, you have experience, you know what they expect, you know what they're going to give you, you know, how many red lines are going to have, you've narrowed things down with a custom client, especially one that you don't know, like there is a lot open there. Oh yeah, totally. Totally. Um, So it's, it's interesting. It's been, it's funny. The reason I, I want to bring this up to you guys is because the thing that excites me about TikTok is the same thing that excited me about podcasting. Mm. So I'm wondering how I got there and made that connection and you guys didn't. That's a great question. I'll give two, a couple answers, right? But like my view is changing. One, honestly, when the first numbers came out and, and like, regular guys, not architecture. We're saying like, yeah, TikTok's great. I get all these views. I'm like, these are fake views. These are fake views. There's no way your crappy dance is getting like 400,000 views. Right. Because yeah, you know, uh, but then, and, and that kind of blinded me, but I like, because I didn't think about, okay, what could you do that would interest someone? And the reveal of, this is where we started. This is midpoint. This is endpoint. Whatever. Um, that's something that I could see, you know, hit on people actually actually like. Yeah. I'm interested on uh, Aaron's take. I hope Aaron listens to this episode because we I brought up uh, tick, Aaron's our social media manager. I t- brought up TikTok a couple. I don't know how long. It doesn't matter. But like I brought it up and said, should we should we be doing anything there? 
I mean, does it make sense or not? And the third thing, though, is it was almost banned under Trump. And there was talk a month ago that the Department of State was going to ban it again. Um, but like, hasn't happened so that was the thing is like why jump into something that's going to get banned in the united states the other thing the last maybe the fourth thing is this is like i don't have uh twitter i'm an active user on twitter probably more than anything uh especially since elon took over um so we don't have twitter neither of us have twitter on our on our phones or any of our devices we just well like if we're gonna log in then it's like maybe like at work on a web browser and we look at yeah. it that way just to mitigate the addiction. And then, because it is, very, all of these are very addictive. They're designed that way. Uh, yeah. Facebook, same way. I do have Instagram on my phone because only because it's a mobile application and I use it for my fishing channel. But like, I am to the point in my life where I feel like I I want, me and Al, I know you're 36, Adam, but like, and Al's 37, uh, I'm 39. But even, even just those couple of years, I'm like, oh, I feel like I... I'm getting to the age where I'm not hip anymore. My kids use <laughs> phrases like bet and uh, bussin and like these weird things. And I'm like, I just, I just, I can't even I get a little uneasy even just going like, I'm not even going to play that game of like trying to understand the new lingo, the haircuts. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm at a tipping point. So, so what I'm getting at is like, I don't want to have TikTok on my phone what I wish would happen is like, I wish one of our younger employees, the millennial, the youngest millennials at the firm, like, can you just do it? <laughs> yeah. I believe you that you've gotten leads, obviously, but I don't, I'm just like. So what kind of, is it all that kind of video or what kind of videos are you doing? So I've been mixing it up recently. Um, I have, I started with just holding my phone up to my computer screen and explaining something about a floor plan. Um, a couple of them were time lapses, some weren't, but it was, this is how wide you want your kitchen countertop between your island, and this is how big a bath should be. Um, and little stuff like that. And, you know, I posted a couple and I got 100 views. And I was like, okay, maybe this TikTok's a thing. And then I posted one time lapse and it got like 5,000. I'm like, oh, crap. Like, maybe, maybe it is something real. Um, <laughs> So yeah, just tried a bunch of stuff. Now I've actually hired some videographers to follow me around in homes and talk like more specific. And so I'm doing, you know, each platform is a little bit different on what it demands from a professionalism like standpoint. Like YouTube is has to be well edited, presented well. Mm -hmm. Like it's not going to go if it's it's junk. Whereas TikTok is still on the, the bottom end here, where you can post just about anything from a production quality standpoint and it'll work. So I'm trying to vary my production quality just to see what level of interaction I'm getting. And some of the high production quality videos are doing really, really well. And some are doing just as poor as me holding my phone up to my computer screen. I think the, the biggest problem I see with most people is they're just overthinking it. Like you don't mm. need to be the expert's expert. Um, if anybody has ever said, oh, that's interesting to you or oh, that's neat in a meeting, like it's probably worth a video. And a 15 second video that helps one person, you know, it probably could help more. Interesting. That's a good way to think about it. If you find those things, start noting them down and maybe you'll create some, a backlog where you think that you can do it. I'm, yeah. I'm coming around to your point of view. Um, it, I, I think the answer is you're just younger and hipper than us. 
<laughs> yeah. I don't know about that. My kid said Boston the other day and I was like, well, what's that? And then he explained it. And my rule of thumb is as a white suburban dad, <laughs> I, if I have heard about it or know about it, the trend is over, you know? So Boston is fair. officially over. <laughs> Here's the question though. Can, can I, can I tell you what I think it is? It means that you're yeah. doing something that you're like, it's so cool. It's going fast. Like it's like fast. So a fad fast, like, okay. Does it mean that Bussin? No, Bussin is like really, really cool. Oh, that's all. Um, yeah. Like really, really good. My son said these chicken nuggets are Bussin and he meant like, these are awesome chicken nuggets. See, I'm still, I'm still bad. I'm still using fire. I, I'm barely using fire. <laughs> I, my life rips on me. So anytime I agree with something in someone in a text message, I'll say word. And my wife rips on me all the time. Like nobody is saying word anymore. Like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm still saying word to you. Yeah, I'll say word to you from now on. It's no yeah. problem. I, I'm, yeah. I'm cool. <laughs> well, cool, man. Um, well, I think, uh, I think we're, yeah, we're about ready to wrap up here. We got one last little uh, thing and it's actually a big thing. We're going to hear from our good friend Enoch Sears and uh, hopefully everybody who's listening um, can help out. Hey, Enix Sears here from Business of Architecture, and if you run an architectural practice, then probably one of the most difficult parts about running your practice is making sure you get your fees right, getting the right fee for the job. Because if you undercharge, ultimately, as you know what ends up happening, is you get to the end of the fee and there's still more job left. In that case, you're juggling to try to rob Peter to pay Paul, stealing from a more profitable project to support the less profitable projects. And on the flip side, you probably don't want to charge your clients absorbently too much than you actually need to get the project done. So the question is, how do you charge the right fee? Well, one resource that's been lacking in the architecture industry for a long time now is some sort of guide or comparison about what architecture firms actually charge. If you try to run a Google search on it, what do architects charge, you'll find some outdated information that's wildly inaccurate. And so I just want to record this quick little video to let you know and get to so you can look forward to something that we're doing here at Business of Architecture, which is we will be launching a comprehensive fee report talking about and just revealing what architectural practices around the United States and elsewhere are actually charging, how they set their fees. Do they do percentage of construction costs? Is it stipulated some? Is it hourly not to exceed? Also, what are the particular amounts? We're really excited about this because ever since we started, uh, founded Business of Architecture over 10 years ago, this has been a common question is like, is my pricing right? Is my pricing right? And so this is the question that we hope to answer when we release in December, we'll be releasing uh, this fee report. Now, one of the advantages is of us as a consulting agency is that we can put out this kind of information. Unfortunately, as you know, if you're in the United States, a couple decades ago, the AIA got into big trouble because they published a list of basically like a fee chart, right? So like a fee matrix. And then the United States Justice Department decided that that was price fixing. It was it was causing a monopoly. And so they got in big trouble for doing that. Well, fortunately, from our perspective, we're not limited to talk about fees because we're not an organization. We're not a membership organization. We don't represent architecture as a whole. We're simply a consultancy. And as a matter of fact, our job and our business is to help architectural practices to succeed. So this is why we're super excited about this. So this is just a heads up. Make sure you keep your eyes out on your inbox. If you're not already on our email list, head over to businessofarchitecture.com. Make sure you sign up for our free live video training, and then you'll automatically get put onto our email list. So you will be the first to be notified when we release the fee and compensation 
report, all right? This is specifically tailored for you if you're a small architectural practice owner. You'll get to see very clearly what other people of similar size firms, similar size demographics, similar typologies are actually charging, how they set their fees. So you can start to answer that big question is, I wonder how I fit into what my competitors are charging. Awesome. That sounds great. I, I think that's great information. I am now mad though, because if the state department thinks that that's, uh, you know, price fixing for architects, what about real estate? Like, how are they getting away with it? There's always the, you know, oh, yeah. 1% commission to, to 2, sell. 2. 8, yeah. Yep. And then three, like they're fixing fees. I don't why, know. Why, why I've always said I, my wife hates it. And she finally is over me complaining about it, but I'm like, you guys have a monopoly on this industry. Like you guys are protectionists. Yes. Like just admit it. And she like, I'm not going to put words in her mouth and get her in a loss or anything, but like, it took a lot of me explaining it from, I would just say buyer's perspective, even a developer's perspective of, of, of the process. It just, it's so it's like, especially with the MLS listing, like, Oh, so you can only have access to that with in the, in the capacity that you do or, or get your house listed on it through a realtor. What a barrier. Yeah. Sorry to go. Yeah. Yeah. So that's all we have. Adam, we'll let you have the last word. Anything you want to leave uh, the audience with. Uh, and that's all we got. Yeah. Um, let me see here. If you are struggling with how to size rooms, residential capacity, I have roomlayoutguide.com. You can use code ITF for 10% off. Um and yeah, it's the uh, building blocks to floor plans. So you can figure out how to size, how I size powder rooms, kitchens, all that fun stuff. So check out roomlayoutguide.com. Beautiful. And as always, go ahead, Al. Can say? you convince every architecture college to buy that, to give to their students so that, because students have the worst. Bathrooms, uh, they, make them, they make them 7,000 square feet big. Yeah. Okay. Oh my goodness. It's crazy. <laughs> it's really crazy. How seriously, how did you guys learn to size a residential room? I <laughs> I have literally <laughs> yes, been buying floor plans by hand to as close to scale as possible since I was seven years old. But that's Al and Al's brain works in the opposite of mine, which is why we're a good duo. So that's how he did it. I I had to, I'm such a freaking engineer brain that I had to get really comfortable with like Okay, like a five by eight bathroom. Why is it exactly five by eight? How, what is the smallest I can make it? Like starting with the door, four inches away from the, from the jam for the trim. What is the minimum code we can go from the center of fixtures and that sort of thing? And I had to do that over and over again to the final, to finally to the point where I loosened up to the point of Al being a loose, you know, a looser designer and being comfortable just kind of sketching stuff out. Adam, idea for you. Because I, I've seen your guide. I like your guide. Is there any way that you, you know, it, it's a PDF and I think CAD and you're probably going to get it into Revit too. Um, but yep. package all that up in a folder, but also with commentary, like literally mm. bedroom doors, you know, like I know that you can go two foot six, but hey, two foot eight, two foot eight by six foot eight. This is what it means. And, and, and then this is a lot of work for you. So you don't have to do any of this, obviously. <laughs> But then find like professors list and then say, hey, here's a resource. I know architects would love if your students have it. Would you be interested in, in having this as uh, um, your book list? You know, like you have to have you buy like two or three books. This should be one of them. It can be digitally delivered. Basically, schools can you can go to like CU 
And basically what they do is they buy a voucher, voucher that gets sent to you and then they you send them the files. Um, and it's just part of your curriculum. You can, you know, price it however you want, but like, if you are maybe interior designers too, like every student should have this. And I feel like a narration would also help and maybe complete it. Like, um, Oh yeah, I should. It's a great call. Yeah. yeah. All right. What I was going to say is uh, if you like this episode, you're watching on YouTube, please make sure to like, subscribe, leave us a positive comment. If you're uh, listening terrestrially on the iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, whatever app you use, leave us a five-star review and we will see you next week.